0: We have a tendency, and maybe we've talked about this before. Uh, we, we have a tendency in our culture to make everything A or B, right or left, yes or no. <clears throat> we, we like clarity. Uh, we tend to like binary, right? You're on this side or you're on that side. And if you're on this side, you have to be mad at everybody on that side or you have to agree with everybody on your side. It makes life neat and tidy and clear if all of life and all of issues are A or B. We're not as comfortable with A and B or sometimes A and sometimes B or C or D. We're more A or B people. And we want everybody to stay in their lane, stay in their column, and we want to keep everything separate. We can, if we're not careful, we can have that view when it comes to this subject of faith and doubt. We can come at it from the vantage point of either you have faith or you doubt, either you're confident. Or you're questioning. Either you're sure or you're doubting. When some of you know, if you look at your own life, that faith and doubt don't always work in such neat categories. Faith and doubt don't always keep to themselves. Faith doesn't always stay on this side and doubt on that side. Very often they merge, they coexist at the same time in the same person, sometimes over the same issues. There are things we know and we're confident about, and at the same time, sir, same time there are things that we're questioning. There is a, uh, a father in the New Testament, his story is told in several of the Gospels, but in Mark chapter 9, uh, the father is given a voice more so than in the other gospels uh, It's a wonderful story uh, This dad encounters Jesus, which is always a great moment uh, I don't want to spend too much time on the details of the story Because I, I want to hit where the dad lands in this story I mean, Let me kind of catch you up with what's happening This is a dad who's raised a, a boy who's, who's probably now a teenager, maybe a young man But the dad says ever since this boy was a child He's had seizures and uh, the dad has been trying to find an answer for this, trying to help his child, just like you would. You would do whatever is necessary for your child. You would seek uh, whatever remedies there were. The problem is we're talking about first century in the Middle East, and there just weren't remedies. There wasn't a medication that would make this go away. There wasn't some surgery that the child could have to make things better. There wasn't a center for the study of seizures at that time. And so this dad is he's exhausted. The The wife is not mentioned. The mother is not mentioned in the story, which may indicate that she had passed away. And so here's this dad Night and day, trying to care for his son. His son had reached an age and a size where it was getting more and more difficult for the dad to protect him. Because as we'll read, the, the seizures would come on at any moment and sometimes he would roll into a fire. Sometimes he would roll into a body of water where he potentially could drown. And the dad is exhausted, so he brings his boy to the disciples and the disciples can't help the boy for whatever reason. They take the boy to Jesus, and as Jesus is walking towards them, the child begins to have a seizure. And this is what happens in Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, the dad answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I know the Bible doesn't clue us in a lot to the emotional content, but every time I read that, I hear an exhausted, desperate, Dad, if you can do anything, if you can help even a little bit. I don't know if you can solve this. I don't know if you can make it a little bit better. If you can do anything, we will take anything at this point. If you can do anything. Anything. And Jesus responds with a question. Jesus says, if you can. like, Do you know who you're talking to? If you can. Jesus answered. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. This is the phrase, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And for the dad, it wasn't one or the other. It wasn't A or B. It wasn't faith or doubt. The dad was saying, there's some things I'm sure of, I'm confident in, I want to believe, I want to trust, I don't want to doubt, but I'm going to be honest, Jesus. There's some parts that I, I don't know if I believe in or not. I don't know if I trust or not. I have faith. I have doubt. I have confidence. But at the same time, I have questions. And if we're honest about this faith-doubt issue in our lives, that's where we land more times than we want to admit. Some things we are sure about, we're confident about, we know. And at the very same time, there are questions we're still trying to figure out. We can't just go through life when it comes to faith and doubt with this binary issue because faith and doubt, They aren't opposites in the sense that they aren't mutually exclusive. It's not like you get far enough over on faith and you don't have any doubts or you run so far to doubt that you don't have any faith. They they aren't opposites. They aren't mutually exclusive. They often coexist. They often live side by side. Because when I am my most confident, often... Enough time goes by and I have a little doubt. And when I am doubting the most, there's a part of me that still at least wants to believe. They're not mutually exclusive. They live in our hearts at the same time. And this, this prayer by the dad is such a perfect prayer for those times, I believe. But help me in these places I don't know how to believe in yet. I don't know how to trust you yet. I, I don't know if this is true. We have to exist in that both-and world. Uh, Thabiti uh, Anyabuele is a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he's an author. It's kind of a lengthy quote, so stay with me. Uh, Uh, Anyabuele writes, Questions are not answers. If we have questions but no answers, we can only experience doubt, but answers are not questions either. If we have all the answers but no questions, we will seldom experience wonder. We should answer questions and allow answers to prompt questions. We would be healthier if we refused to valorize either answers or questions. Sometimes we describe questioning as this romantic journey into not knowing. Others romanticize certainty as if they've escaped the limitations of creatureliness. In other words, they've forgotten that they're actually human. Neither posture really helps. I think we're meant to live in this cycle between discovery and awe. Discovery comes from getting answers, even partial answers. All comes from answers that open onto even bigger questions and potentially bigger answers. Discovery produces awe. Awe prompts discovery and so on. And this is the cycle of faith. In doubt, confidence leads me into deeper questions, and deeper questions leads me into deeper answers. And in some ways, our whole spiritual journey is this back and forth of confidence and seeking and being sure and asking questions. It's a part of living for God. And it should not frighten us when it happens, either when it happens in us or when it happens in the people we care about. Because that's often when we freak out the most, isn't it? It's when our kids begin to ask questions of doubt. When the people that we love, when the people closest to us begin to express uncertainty, that's when we get the most nervous. But as this dad teaches us, we are going to live in, exist in faith and questions our whole Experience Now, throughout the rest of today, what I'm going to encourage you to do is to try to get specific about your doubts. When you're in one of those hallways that we talked about last week, when you're in one of those transitional spaces of doubt and questioning, name it. Get very specific about what you're doubting because sometimes we enter into doubt, we have this feeling of doubt, and we just apply it to everything. We say, well, I I doubt all of it. I don't believe any of it. I think all of it's wrong, and that may be the case. But most of the time, that's not the case. And even when it is the case, that doubt started somewhere. That started with some question that often we extrapolate to everything in our spiritual life and kind of lump it all under, I doubt it all. I don't believe any of it. And and what I'm going to challenge you with today wherever you are in your doubts, is to step back and try to figure out where did this come from? Rather than taking a doubt and making it the judge over everything else I believe and deciding I don't believe anything, step back and ask, what started this? What was the question that started all of this? Here's what I think. I think sometimes... We give our doubts too much credit. We give the strength and weight of our doubts too much credit. And listen, I'm talking to you as a fellow doubter, right? I've been there too. I've walked through seasons where I've wondered and I've questioned and I've doubted. And I said, God, are you real? Like, is this really real? There have been times I've looked at things in the Bible and I've, I've questioned and I've doubted. I'm a fellow doubter who would say to you, sometimes we give our doubts too much credit. We think they're stronger than they really are. We, we give them too much power over us. Sometimes we think, well, I have come up with the question that dismantles all of Christianity and religion, right? We think that highly of our doubts sometimes. It gets the top spot, the strongest spot, the arbiter of all other things spiritual in my life. I've found it. I have the question that can't be answered. We just give our doubts a lot more credit sometimes than they deserve. I was in a conversation several years ago with somebody who was in our church at the time. Uh, attended regularly, sent their kids to a Christian school, and we were talking about the Bible. And this person was expressing doubts about the reliability of the Bible, and uh, they paraphrased a portion of the Bible. Uh, it, it's an illustration that's used a couple times in the Old Testament. Primarily, it's a metaphor. Um, it, it, it's it's not literal. But they use this particular phrase as if it were literal. I'm not going to tell you the phrase because they could possibly hear this. Um, But I would say it's something like this. If you were to say the phrase, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, is literally talking about holding a bird in your hand, that was the sort of comment that was made. The Bible says this literally. Therefore, that was their excuse for questioning everything in the Bible. Which, after we have more discussion, it was their excuse for not obeying the parts of the Bible they didn't like, is really what it was. But they had taken this doubt in their mind, this question in their mind, and decided since this isn't true, I don't have to listen to anything else. Since this isn't true, I get to doubt and question everything else. Sometimes we do that with doubt, sometimes we say, ah, oh, I found it. I found the one. I'm smarter than everybody else who's ever come before me. We elevate our doubts to this place of power and strength in our lives, which is, which is why I, I want to encourage you, when in doubt, have the humility to question your doubts. If you're really serious about walking through your doubts and not getting stuck in a doubt, Have the humility to question your questions, to doubt your doubts. Just like you doubt your faith, doubt your doubts. Hold them with humility. I know they're real to you, and and, and some of them come out of traumatic uh, experiences that you've had. Some of them come out of hard memories that you have about Christianity or Christian people or about the church. I'm not dismissing that. I totally understand that. Have the humility when you doubt to ask questions about why you're doubting, where it came from. There's a word that's uh, become popular in uh, Christian circles. It's the word deconstruction. Deconstruction is kind of along these lines of asking questions. Deconstruction is not, it's not originated in Christianity. Obviously, if we're talking about physical deconstruction, we're talking about tearing something down, right? A building that's standing, we're going to tear it down into its smallest smallest pieces. Philosophically, we're talking about deconstructing. We're talking about breaking down an argument, breaking down a philosophy, breaking down a system into its smallest parts and asking, is all of this true? Does all of this work? How much of this has been impacted by tradition and culture? How much did we get wrong when we were building this philosophy? How much did we get wrong when we were building this system? So philosophically, deconstruction is kind of tearing apart a way of viewing the world to try to judge whether it's true or false and which parts are true and false. Spiritually speaking, this word gets used a lot. Unfortunately, it gets defined in about 30 different ways. So in some sense, it's a hard word to talk about because you're going to see one person who uses it this way and one person that uses it this way. Let me, let me try to give you the two different approaches to defining deconstruction. The one that I think is kind of an extreme approach is the one that equates deconstruction with deconverting. Anyone who's questioning, doubting, that will eventually lead to them leaving the faith. And so some people use the word deconstructing when they mean deconverting and leaving the faith. And we're not theologically going to swim in the waters of can you lose your salvation today. We'll we'll do that some other time. But deconverting, we we know Christians, many of you have heard of well-known pastors who now say, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in spiritual things. I don't call myself a Christian anymore. I have no religious beliefs. I have no faith. I have deconverted. That happens wherever that fits into our theological framework. That happens. Some people use this word deconstructing to describe that. I think there are better words to describe deconverting like deconverting, but some people equate those two. Deconstruction, in my mind, is simply looking at a system or a belief or a structure and trying to discern, is this true? Is this real? How much of what I say I believe is really my tradition or am I at like? or my preferences, or what my parents told me, or what the church I grew up in told me. That's my definition of deconstruction. I'll give you one that I made up. Uh, You're not going to find this in Wikipedia or anywhere else. This is just off the cuff. This is how I see deconstruction. It's examining your faith in order to distinguish between what is true and false in an effort to separate what is influenced by tradition, culture, and experience rather than by God and His Word, and in doing so, determine what the Bible actually says and what you really believe. It's stepping back somewhat objectively and saying, you know, I've always been taught this. Does the Bible actually say that? Or is that just what my parents always told me? Is that what my church always said, but it's not in the Bible? So it's evaluating Uh, what we believe. If you are a follower of Jesus for very long, you should do some of that. You should try to separate your culture from what God's Word says. You should try to separate your traditions from what God actually commands. In my mind, that's what deconstruction is. We used to call it Making your faith your own. If you've ever heard that phrase, making your faith your own. We used to say to teenagers, you've got to make your faith your own one day. You can't just believe because your parents told you to believe. You can't just believe because the church told you to believe. You've got to know what God's Word says. You've got to know why you believe. You have to make your faith your own. In my opinion, that's kind of what deconstruction is. It's asking, is this what God says or just what people have told me? Now, that process can lead to deconverting if not handled well. If we don't walk through the hallway we've been talking about carefully, then we can end up in some bad places, but we should always be questioning. Do I believe what God says? Now, I'm going to admit, I am 100% chickening out on giving you examples today. I'm not ashamed of that. Um, I'm a coward. I'm going to give you the easy ones. And then you and I in the hallway can talk about the hard ones if you want to one-on-one. Let me give you the easy ones just for an example. Many of us grew up in churches that defined what everyone should wear when they come to church, right? Maybe you grew up in that, that church, right? Women especially, you know, we are obsessed with what women wear apparently. So women especially, like there was a dress code couldn't wear pants you, you, you couldn't have open-toed shoes I don't know what all your church what all their rules are same thing with men you need a tie you need a coat which is all fine it's, it's fine to dress up to go to church but obviously you go to this church and so somewhere along the way <laughs> I'm not saying you look bad today I'm just saying um, somewhere along the way you did what i did you went you know that's fine but i don't think the bible actually says that i think you could go to church and wear whatever you want and god would be okay with that okay so that that's deconstruction you said this is part of tradition it's not really the what god says uh music is another easy one again total coward on the hard ones um Some of you went to a church, and they would not have played the drums or allowed drums within five miles of the building. You couldn't play guitar. Um, You had to sing songs that were at least 100 years old, written by people who are now dead, or you don't sing them, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having an organ. There's nothing sinful about having a piano or having no instruments. Some churches don't have any instrument. There's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing wrong with singing hymns or old songs or songs written by dead people. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But you figured out because you'd now go to this church. You figured out, well, that's not the only way to do it. Like the Bible doesn't say you have to do it that way you deconstructed a tradition that you grew up with and said it's not good or bad but it's also not law that you have to do it this way all of us walk through this all of us walk through these seasons hopefully like if you have a a mind if you bring your mind to your spirituality you're going to do this at times and you're going to evaluate you know how How is my culture? How has my upbringing? How is is the country that I live in? How is that swerved over into my spirituality and I'm I'm having trouble separating it out? This is what it means to deconstruct. Now, when we deconstruct, here's my suggestion. When in doubt, specifically when, when you're in this questioning, deconstructing phase, when in doubt, define your doubt get very specific about what it is get very specific again because i think what will happen is we will just decide that we doubt and we must doubt everything because i doubt something Now, what is it that caused you to begin asking these questions what do you doubt matthew chapter 14 the disciples are in a fishing boat and they're going across the lake and a storm comes up waves, wind. They're frightened. They see a figure walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. It's not a ghost. It's Jesus. Jesus gets close enough and says, it's me, guys. Everything's fine. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me walk out there to you. And Jesus says, okay, come on. Water's fine. Come on. And so Peter steps out of the boat, and he walks on water for a little bit. And some of you know the story. The wind picks up, and the waves get higher, and And Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink. And Jesus rescues him. He doesn't let him drown. He catches him. And then Jesus says in Matthew 14, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? That's a great question. Why why did you doubt? Some questions there aren't answers for. When I do something dumb around the house or even accidental around the house, my wife's instinctive response is to go, why did you do that? I just did the other guys in the room, you're nodding. Yeah, If I drop a glass and it shatters all over the, the counter, my wife's first response, why did you do that? Just been thinking about it all day, I thought, <laughs> I'm going to smash this glass, it's going to sound so cool when it shatters, why did you do that? i don't have an answer for why i do i'm a guy i'm I'm dumb I, i i don't have an answer for why i do some things jesus asks this question we don't get an answer but it's a great question why did you doubt now whenever jesus asks a question it's never because he needs information right we've encountered him asking questions before jesus is never going i'm i don't i'm not sure i need you to fill me in jesus already knows the question is for peter why think about it peter why did you doubt? When you and I are walking through this faith doubt space in our life, and we'll do it repeatedly, when we're in this deconstruction time periods of our life, I think it can be so helpful to just say, where did it come from? Why, why am I doubting? What sparked this? And it could be something very real. All right, let's be honest. It, it can be something very Real for some of you, perhaps what what started a season of doubt for you was some broken, traumatic, hard experience you had with a church in the past. You you saw people behave a certain way in a church. You you had a church maybe as the leadership respond in a certain way to you or to somebody you care about. You had a, a pastor that acted. A certain way, and that kind of set off a season of you wondering what, what, what's going on? Do I believe what they believe if that's how they act? Where, where did it come from? You see, in order to overcome doubt, we have to examine this why. Why am I asking these questions? What is it that I'm dealing with? For some people, it's circumstances. You went through a real hard time. You lost somebody you care about. You watch somebody suffer, and you're thinking, God, you're supposed to be good. How does this happen? What set you down that path? Because as I said, sometimes we take one doubt, and we extrapolate it over everything, and what will help us in this process is to get really specific. This is where it came from. This is why I'm asking that particular question. Uh, sometimes, let's, let's be honest, sometimes we doubt because life isn't going the way we want it to go, right? And again, I'm a fellow doubter, right? This is not an accusation. Sometimes things don't work out, and life kind of falls apart, and and, and sometimes it's we're partly to blame for that, but we don't really want to accept that, and so Sometimes it's just a simple fact that life is not going the way we want it, and then God becomes an easy target, and I'm not dismissing the way you feel. I'm saying this is is what sets some people on this road of doubt, is my life is not what I thought it would be. I'm going to blame God. I'm out. Uh, Sometimes it's because we've seen Christians fail so miserably. We've seen pastors, sometimes very well-known pastors. We we hear stories about really big, really well-known churches. And unfortunately, we've been treated to a series of those over the past few years. Right, we had Willow Creek and Harvest Bible Chapel and Mars Hill—the whole podcast thing—and now you know, this documentary's come out about Hillsong, and we got the whole Hillsong New York thing, and we got impact even on a congregation here in Atlanta. Those stack up for us, and we begin to ask, well, okay, if this is what the face of Christianity is like, if this is how the famous Christians act, or maybe it's not a famous Christian, maybe, and and this can be even harder, it's a pastor nobody knows, but they hurt you. They disappointed you. You were there was a deacon there was an elder there was a sunday school teacher there was a this where, where did it come from where did where did it start those are hard issues those are real issues I'm not going to try to go through all of those right now, now my, my point is ask what set me down this road of questioning get specific define When it comes to failures of leadership, failures of Christians, I would say a couple of things. And and the first one is this. It is unfair to judge a perfect God by His imperfect followers. And unfair is maybe a harsh word. I couldn't find another one. It's unfair. It's not the same thing that I am imperfect. That doesn't mean God is imperfect. And that can be hard to to divide because we see people in Christian leadership as such a representation of God, and they're supposed to be, and they're supposed to be uh, more accountability for a person in leadership, but but I just want to say an imperfect person is not the same as an imperfect God. It's, it's actually okay to doubt people sometimes. It's okay to be disappointed in people sometimes. It, it's okay at times to to leave a church or to to take yourself out from under the authority and ministry and leadership of a particular person because of what's happened, what you've seen in their life. That's not the same as God being imperfect. That's not the same as God failing, and that can be a bit of a difficult line to draw. Why? Where did it come from? Sometimes there's aspects in the Bible that we don't like or don't agree with or don't understand. For some people, that's where it all starts. I read this. Look, if you're if you read the Bible for very long, you're gonna come to places that you don't understand, right? You're gonna come to places that you're gonna think, ah, oh, I don't I don't know how I feel about that. We've all done it. It's part of spiritual growth. It's part of spiritual development and and understanding more who God is. You are not alone but for a lot of people, they come to the Bible and they find something they just can't understand. It, it, It is time well spent for you and I to explore this where did it come from? Especially when it comes to aspects in the Bible, just hit this briefly, when it comes to aspects in the Bible, it's good to figure out whether this question is directly related to the main message of the Bible or not, or is this kind of a secondary periphery issue that I'm getting hung up on and those deserve answers to, and those are good questions to ask? All of the Bible is important, all of the Bible is inspired, but not every part of the Bible is directly connected to the main message of the Bible. And Christians for thousands of years have disagreed about different parts of the Bible. Sometimes we're hung up on something that's not essential to the core. Of God's message. if you were here on Easter, I read Paul's words where he said, Look, I want to tell you what first what the first importance is. I'm going to tell you what is of first importance, and it's this that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And, 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 and when I'm hung up on something on the Bible, I, I often have to ask, all right, does it impact that? Because I can carry doubts about some other things that aren't related to the core message of the gospel that God gives us in his word. Um, here's here's a, a, another thing to ask, and I'm not sure I've worded this well. Zach and I were kind of getting ready for this series weeks ago, and this thought came up as we were talking. I've been trying to figure out how to, how to put it in the right context. Here's a question we should ask when we're doubting. <clears throat> Am I doubting to destroy doubting to develop. That goes to motive. That's not just what I'm doubting. It's the motive behind my doubting. Am I doubting to tear down or am I doubting so that I'll understand better? Those are two completely different motives. Am I doubting because I just want to burn the whole thing down? And trust me, I get that. I understand that when we've been hurt, when, when we've seen Uh, poor representation of Jesus by Christian leaders and, and churches. I get it. I get wanting to just be done with it. I get wanting to walk away. But I need to check my motive in that moment. Has this doubt become so big to me because I want a reason to walk away, and this has given me that reason? Am I doubting because I... I want to get out of community with other believers, and I think this gives me an excuse to do that. Am I doubting because I don't want to have anything to do with the church, and this doubt has given me a reason to do that? And listen, I know churches hurt people. I've been hurt by churches. I've been hurt by Christians. I get that feeling. But what God wants to do in our doubts is he wants to grow us. He wants our faith ultimately to be strengthened. He wants us to be developed. And you're not going to walk through doubt in a healthy way if your doubt has become an excuse for you to disengage. If your doubt has become a reason for you to distance yourself. Last thing. Focusing on Jesus helps us navigate our doubt. Focusing on Jesus, bringing my questions back to Jesus keeps us grounded in the midst of asking lots of questions because what can happen is we can get on this rabbit trail of questions and doubts and forget that at the core of our faith is a person. It's God who came in the flesh. He loved you enough To take your sin, to die in your place, and to rise again so that you could have eternal life. And yeah, I got questions outside of that. The core of what we believe, the core of what we've given our life to is is a person, Jesus. A person who doesn't abandon us in our doubts. He catches Peter when he doubts. He listens to a dad say, I believe, but I I don't believe everything. He's there in that moment, and he's there in that moment for you. Like, I don't know where you are in this whole process, but Jesus is there with you. Jesus doesn't abandon you in doubts. Jesus is constantly saying, keep coming towards me. Keep coming towards me. Keep your eyes on me. Your questions are fine. Your questions are legitimate. Your feelings are legitimate. But but keep walking towards me. I just want to encourage you with that today. Whatever those questions are, don't let the question eclipse the person who loves you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? And I would invite you just to just to take a breath breathe in and breathe out and and then be honest with God be honest with the Jesus who asks why are you doubting and he asks it not accusing you of anything he asks it because he wants to walk you through that doubt he's going to be with you through that promise Can you snatch your doubt out of the vague general, I've just given up on it all? And drill down to, this is where it started. This is what i got to figure out with God's help. Jesus won't fail you. He will not fail you. I pray across this room a room full of hearts some who feel like they, well, they just have a, a ton of faith just great faith strong faith and maybe just a few questions and some, some who feel like they got a whole lot of questions and not very much faith and you love them all You are gracious and gentle and patient with us all. Help us not to miss you, not to miss Jesus. By using our doubts as an excuse to stay away. Grow us. Affirm what is true in us deepen our faith through our doubts. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.